0: Well, 17 years ago, I got the opportunity to go to India with the engineering company that I worked for. I was paired with another engineer. We were working together on a project. So I was with him for about two weeks, three weeks. It was a while that we spent together. Now, this fellow engineer, he was a Hindu and, and Hinduism believes in a lot of gods. Actually, they have somewhere around 300 or 350 million gods in their pantheon. And if you're Hindu, what you do is you choose a, a god or maybe a few gods that will be your gods to worship. And so whatever god you have chosen, you need to follow the requirements of that particular god. Now, this man and his family had chosen a god that lived in one of the national parks of India in a cave. You could actually go visit his God. You just climb a ladder up into the cave and and there's the God. And this particular God had certain requirements, like this man had to shave the hair of his son at a certain age in a certain river, and so he was gone for a few days because it was that time in the life of his son to go shave his hair. And as this man was describing his God to me, I thought, wow, we mean something very different by the word God. How in the world am I going to describe the God of the Bible to you? Because they're so different. Well, that's the question I want to ask you this morning. How would you describe the God of the Bible to a neighbor or a friend or a coworker who's not a Christian like you are? How would you describe the God of the Bible to someone who's a, a Muslim or, or a Jew or Hindu or Buddhist or an atheist or doesn't know anything about God or God's? What would you say? Well, that's what I want to help you with this morning. I want to help you answer this question. Not only so that you can describe the God of the Bible to a friend or neighbor, but for you. I want to help you answer this question so that in your own life you can worship God intelligently. Because remember what Jesus told us in Matthew 22, the greatest commandment of all, greatest commandment in your life, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. If you're going to worship God, you must worship him, not just with your heart, not just with your soul, not just with your emotions, but with your mind. You must understand God to worship him appropriately. You must know truth about God and think accurately about him to give him worship that pleases him. Pleasing worship is accurate worship. And so this morning I want to help you to develop accurate thoughts about God so that you can worship Him and live with Him rightly. That's the most important thing you'll do in life. As Tozer reminds us, you've seen this quote before, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. What you think about in your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you as a person. And so we want to make sure that we're thinking right thoughts about God. So what do you need to know about the God of the Bible? Well, the first thing is Trinity, and you talked about that last week. Trinity is so big and complicated and important that we gave it a whole sermon. So Brian talked with you last week about what it means to say that God is Trinity, that there is one God and that the Father and the Son and and the Spirit are God. Each person is fully God. You covered that last week. So this week we're going to move to the next subject, which is God's Attributes. We're going to talk about the attributes of God. Now, an attribute is simply something that describes God. So it's a biblical description of God. An attribute is like an adjective. It just tells you what your God is like. It would be like me calling my wife, Julie, intelligent and witty and tall. Those are adjectives about Julie, just like attributes are adjectives about God. So what does the Bible tell us about God? What are the adjectives, the attributes it gives us to describe our God. Well, there's a lot of them. Way more than I could cover in a sermon. So I have limited myself to 10. Now, for some of you, you're going to think, oh my gosh, 10 attributes. If you know me well, you know that was hard to just get down to 10. I'm going to give you 10 in two categories. Five about the greatness of God and five about the goodness of God. Okay, so let's start with some adjectives that describe the greatness of God. Top five attributes that give us the greatness of God. The first attribute when we think about how great God is, is that God is free. Now that's kind of an odd word to describe your God. What do you mean God is free? Like he's without cost? No, no, no. When we say that God is free, what we mean is that our God is not limited by anything or anyone outside himself, nor is he dependent on anyone or anything for his existence. Free means that God is self-existent. He doesn't depend on anything else to give Him life. It means that He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from anyone or anything else. It means that God is infinite. There is nothing that can bound or restrict God. He is without limits. That's what we mean when we say that God is free. And Paul describes the, the freedom of God in the book of Acts, chapter 17. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. There's nothing that your God needs from anyone because he's completely free. He is not dependent on on anything. There was this one morning when I walked, and years ago, it hasn't happened recently, but I, years ago, I walked into a children's ministry classroom, and I remember somebody had written on the board, Jesus needs you to share your faith with your friends. And I thought, no! No, that's not right. That's a sweet thought, but it's not correct. Jesus doesn't need anything from you. He wants you to share your faith for you, because it's good for you to do that. But Jesus doesn't depend on you for anything. He can save your friend with or without you. Jesus is God and God is free. And we are not free. We're like the exact opposite of that. We're dependent on other people, on on the earth to give us food and water. We're dependent on God every moment of every day. I could not live 24 hours without help. I'd actually die within moments because I wouldn't have air to breathe. I'm always dependent. I'm always needing others God doesn't. God is the only free being who has ever existed. So God is completely free. That's interesting. That's uh, quite an interesting little academic fact about God. But why does that matter? Well, every time that you get to one of these attributes of God and you think, well, Blake, why does that matter? How is that not just trivia about God? What you do is you stop for a second and you ask yourself, how would my life be different if this was not true of God, so how would your life be different if your God was not free? What if your God was a small God who was in competition with other gods? What if your God was limited by forces outside of his control? How would your life be different then? Do any of you remember reading Homer's Iliad? You all read it in high school, at least parts of it. You probably don't remember it because it wasn't a fun book to read, it's really bloody. It's the story of the battle between the Greek army and the Trojan army, but it's really the story of the battle between gods, the Greek gods. You had Athena and Hera and Poseidon on the side of the Greeks, and you had Apollo and Ares and Aphrodite on the side of the Trojans, and these gods, they fought with each other and they deceived each other and they manipulated each other, and the result was that thousands of humans suffered and died. Well, that is what you would have in life if your God was not free. If your God was battling other gods, competing with other gods, then you would have absolutely no security in life. How do you know that you're safe in the hands of God if your God is not free? If your God could be beaten by other gods or limited by forces outside of his control, then you would have absolutely no peace in life. Because you would never know if your God is going to come out on top. Your life would be a nightmare. There is no security for us without the freedom of God. There is only fear in a universe made up of small gods. But you can have peace because your God is free. He is infinite, self-sufficient, self-existent, absolutely unlimited. That's the first attribute of God. It gives you peace in life. Your God is free. Second attribute of God. Your God is eternally unchanging. Unlike us, our God does not have a beginning. He also does not have an ending. Here's what Paul says in the book of 1 Timothy. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul wants us to do is think about time as a line all of time as a line and you look to the left and you look to the right and there's no point on that line where God does not exist he is eternal he's immortal always has existed but but actually there's more than that because we learn in second Peter 3 8 with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day what that's telling you is that actually your God doesn't live on the line he's not limited and bound by time like we are he actually stands above the timeline his he doesn't he's not subject to the rules of time like we are. He can move within time in some way. I don't understand it. It's way too big for me, way too grand for me. But not only is your God eternal, but he is not limited, he's not bound in time like you are. He has always existed above time, just as he is today. He's eternally unchanging, living above the line of time. It tells us in Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Your God is unchanging. We use the fancy word immutable to describe that. He's immutable. Immutable. He does not change in any way for all time, past, present, and future. God is always unchanging. God is as God was, as God ever will be, with one exception. What's the one exception? The incarnation. When God took on human flesh, that is the one and only time ever that the nature of God changed. That's why the incarnation is so incredible. That the eternal, immutable, unchanging, absolute creator took on our human flesh. And all of a sudden, he grew. That's crazy. He learned. He matured. He aged. He died. He changed. When the Son of God took on human flesh and lived as one of us. That's the only time there's ever been change in the nature of God. Everywhere outside of the incarnation, God is unchanging. And why does that matter for you? Again, every time you think about these attributes of God, you need to think about why does it matter? Well, that gives you stability in your life because you live in a world where everything is changing all the time. Things are changing all the time. You need something you can hold on to that's not changing, and that's God. Your Father in heaven is the same today as He was yesterday as He will be tomorrow. He's not going to change. So if you build your life on your relationship with your heavenly father, if that's the core of your life, if that's the most important thing in your life, that means you have stability even when the whole world is changing around you. Because your relationship with your father will not change, at least not on his end, because he never changes. You can absolutely count on him to be the same tomorrow as he is today, as he has always been for you. So the immutability of God, the eternal unchangingness of your God, that's really important to you because it gives you stability in a world that's always changing. You can count on your God to stay the same. That's the second attribute we want to talk about when we talk about the greatness of God. Third attribute, the power of God. Our God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent is the big theological word. It means God is strong enough to do anything He wants to do. He has sufficient power to do anything. We would use words like almighty or sovereign to describe the omnipotence of our God. The book of Psalm talks a lot about the omnipotence of God. In chapter 135 it says, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and all the deeps. God can do anything he wants to do. There is no limit on the power of God. Now, that might bring a question to your mind that I've actually gotten a lot. A lot over the years, people ask me, well, if God is omnipotent, then does that mean God is able to sin? Does God have enough power to actually do an evil thing? Well, the answer is yes. Of course he does. He has all power. So he has sufficient power to do evil, to do sin, and yet he never will. Why? Well, because of another attribute we're going to study in a minute called holiness. Holiness means that God is absolutely separate from sin and evil. He's always been holy. And so when you combine God's holiness, his separateness from sin and evil with God's immutability that God never changes, well, then if God sinned, he would suddenly not be holy and that would be a change. And God does not change. So God cannot sin. In other words, God's power is infinite, and yet it is limited by what? By his own character. That's the only limit on God himself. Nothing external to God limits God. God is his own limiter. God will never do anything that compromises any of his other attributes. And so God has all power to do all things, and yet he will never do anything that compromises any of his other attributes. Okay, some more academic facts about God. What does the omnipotence of God mean to you? How does it matter in your life that your God has all power? Well, what that means for you is that you can never screw up your life so bad that you are beyond hope. You see, if your God did not have all power, then theoretically you could mess up so badly that you would make yourself irredeemable. I, I could mess up so badly that I could ruin my life or my wife or my kids and I would be beyond hope. But that's not true if God is omnipotent. If God is omnipotent, then it is impossible for me to ruin my life beyond hope. It is impossible for me to do anything that God cannot lift me out of and work good out of. The omnipotence of God is what gives you hope because what it means is you can never fall into a hole so deep that God cannot lift you out of it and bring good out of it. The omnipotence of God gives you hope even when you've really messed up. You are never beyond the reach of the power of God to bring good and redemption into your life. The omnipotence of God, really important in your daily life. Fourth attribute about God. When we say that God is great, we're saying that He is all-knowing. Fancy word for it is omniscient. Omniscient means that God knows all things. He knows and fully understands all things. And by all things, we mean all things, really all things. First, we mean all things past, present, and future. It tells us in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. God knows and understands all things past, present, and future. He sees the present in infinite detail. He sees everything that's happening in the universe right this moment. On a cosmic scale, it tells us that he calls out the stars by name. He sees the movement of the galaxies. He understands them in infinite detail all the way down to the microscopic level. He sees a a fetus, an embryo developing in the womb of a mother. He sees a thought forming in your mind, which is just a neuron firing. He sees it all. From the grandest scale to the smallest scale, he sees it all and he understands it all in perfect detail, which if we take that and we think about our thoughts for a moment, what that means is that God sees and understands our thoughts better than we understand them. God knows your body, your mind, your emotions, your thoughts better than you know them. He sees the present in infinite detail. But Psalm 139 goes further because it's not just the present and therefore the past that God sees in infinite detail. It's also the future because it tells us right there at the end of that passage, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Every day of your life in its infinite detail was already written in the mind of God before you even existed. means that God has already seen your future in infinite detail. It's not just that God is so intelligent that he can predict what you'll do tomorrow. No, remember God's relationship to time. He stands above time, meaning God has already been in your tomorrow. He's already seen your tomorrow. He doesn't have to guess what you're going to do tomorrow. He's already seen it in all of its infinite detail. And so God sees the past and the present and the future in infinite detail at all time. But that's not all. So we don't just mean that God sees all things that actually happen past, present, and future. By omniscient, we also mean he sees all the things that could have happened. It tells us in the book of Matthew, chapter 11. This is Jesus speaking. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Notice God doesn't say they might have repented. He doesn't say they probably would have repented. Jesus says they would have repented. That's a certainty. If this had happened, then this would have been the result. How does Jesus know that? Because Jesus is God, and God sees all possibilities. Jesus saw what would have happened given different choices. There's supercomputers these days that can beat grandmasters at chess because they have so much processing power that they can compute millions of possible future moves much more than any human could. And yet that's child's play compared to your God. Because according to the Bible, your God has already seen all the infinite trillions of possible moves your life could take. He saw them all and he picked this life for you. God, your father, picked this life because he saw all possible paths your life could take and he knew this was best. So he chose this one. In other words, your God sees the whole board. There's nothing he does not see. All actual things, past, present, and future, and all possible things. God never has to guess. God has never guessed anything. God always knows everything with absolute certainty. Everything that is, everything that was, everything that will be, everything that could be. He knows it all as fact. Your God never has to guess and here's what that means for you. Here's why that matters. This, my friends, is how we find freedom from anxiety. What is anxiety? Anxiety is fear about the future. It's fear in your heart, more in your stomach, that something bad is going to happen to you or to someone you care about in the future. Anxiety is bred in uncertainty. You can't see the future. It's shadows. It's a mystery to you. And so anxiety is that feeling in your gut that there's a nightmare waiting for you in the shadows of the future. So what do you do when you feel anxiety? Well, you meditate on the omniscience of God, because there are no shadows when God looks into the future. He's already seen everything that will happen. He's seen everything that could happen, and he has chosen the best path for you. Whatever happens to you in the future, you have a loving Heavenly Father who saw everything that could have been and everything that should be, and He chose the best path for you. And so there's never a need for God's people to be fearful, to be anxious. You have nothing to be afraid of. We live in a culture that is awash with anxiety. You see it in the news every day. You see it on your Facebook feed every day. People are so afraid. They're so anxious about what's going to happen in the future. We can be the voices of peace in the midst of all that fear. We can be the voices reminding people... God's got this. He knows what's going to happen in our nation, in our economy, in our schools, in our kids. He's already seen it all. Not just what will happen, but what could have happened. And because he's a good God, he's chosen the best path. And you can trust him. You can trust a God who can see the whole board. And so the omniscience of God is your solution to anxiety. Nothing will ever surprise your father. He will never have to guess. He knows with absolute certainty that he's chosen the best path for you and your children. Because he saw every possible path. And he chose this one. That's the omniscience of God. Knows all things, past, present, and future things, actual and things possible. Fifth and finally under the greatness of God. Our God is everywhere present. We call that God's omnipresence. He is everywhere always completely present in his creation. Now that doesn't mean that God and creation are one. That would be pantheism. God is distinct from creation and yet he's everywhere present in it. It Tells us in the book of Jeremiah, can a man hide him Hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. God, the Father, he he fills the whole heavens and the earth, the whole universe. God is everywhere, always completely present. There's nowhere you can go where God would not be with you. Now, why does that matter? Well, practically speaking, what that matters for you is that you are as with God in your bedroom as at church. Now, some of you are thinking to yourselves, then why am I not in my bed? (laughs) That's a good question for a different sermon. We'll get there. (laughs) But I hope you didn't come to church today because you thought, boy, I want to get closer to God. No, Christianity is not a geographical religion. We're not an architectural religion. We do not put any stock in places or buildings because our God fills everything and everywhere. You are as with God today in your closet as you are in any church. About 20 years ago, I had the privilege, a friend invited me and took me to Jerusalem, to Israel. We spent 18 days in Israel. We spent five of those days in Jerusalem. I got to walk the Via Della Rosa that Jesus, we think, walked on his way to the crucifixion. I got to go up on the Temple Mount. I got to pray and have a a service on the Mount of Olives. It was incredible. I remember feeling goosebumps like all the time because this is where Jesus walked. And yet I had to remind myself, wait a minute. Jesus is as with me here in College Station as he is in Jerusalem. Because Jesus is everywhere always completely present. Your God is always with you. You're never alone. You do not need to go to a church or a shrine or on a pilgrimage to find God. He's right here, wherever you are at all times. So our God is great When we talk about the greatness of God, we're talking about His absolute freedom. We're talking about His eternal unchangeability. We're talking about His all-powerfulness, His all-knowingness, and His everywhere presence. Now let's move on to the top five attributes of God's goodness. God is great. Now let's talk about how God is good. The first attribute when you're talking about the goodness of God is holy the holiness of God. What do we mean by the holiness of God? Well, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, Isaiah sees into the throne room of God, and here's what he sees. Seraphim, those are powerful angelic beings, stood above him, above God. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, this was written in Hebrew, and in Hebrew, you emphasize a word by repeating it. They didn't have words in English intensifiers like we do, like the word very. You would say, I'm, I'm very tall. I'm not really. I wish I was. But you might say, Blake is very tall. Well, in Hebrew, you'd say, Blake is tall, tall. That's how they emphasize something. So the more you repeat a word in Hebrew, the stronger you're saying it, the bigger it is. And so this is actually the only description of God that's repeated three times in the Bible. God is Holy, holy, holy. Only one repeated three times. Why? Because God really wants you to know it. This is really crucial. The holiness of God. But what does it mean to call God holy? Well, the simple way to think about holy, just want to latch on to something simple way. God's holiness means God is not like us. That's what holiness means. God is not like us. God is separate. He is distinct. He is unique. The holiness of God means that God is Absolutely, utterly different from everything in his creation. He is absolutely separate from creation and from sin and from evil. When we talk about holiness, we usually mean it in a couple different ways. There's moral holiness. God is distinct from everything that is sinful and evil. We can share that sense of the holiness of God. But when we talk about God as holy, it's not just morality. He is also what theologians would call ontologically holy. Now, that's a big word. Ontology means your being. Your essence, what you are. When we say that God is holy, we just don't mean that He's not sinful. We mean He's completely different in essence than us. He is a being utterly unlike us. Everything in the universe is created and finite. God is different. God is neither finite nor created. God is wholly other. Now, why does that matter to you? Why does the holiness of God matter to your daily life? Well, it's about to be an election here in our country, about four months. For a lot of us, we are sweating over trying to choose one of these two to run our country. Do you really want one of them to run our universe? Good God, no. I, I don't want any human being to run our universe, not myself. I wouldn't trust myself with that kind of responsibility. Humans, we're finite, we're limited, we're fallible, we're foolish, we're easily deceived, we're so often evil. None of us have any business pulling the levers of the universe. We want someone who is not like us to run the show. Someone who is not finite, who is not fallible, who is never deceived, who is never evil. That's why you want a holy God. You can trust him because he's not human. He's not like us. He's infinitely better. Second attribute that describes God's goodness. Not only is God holy, but God is just. Just means that God always does that which is right. Interestingly, both in Hebrew and in Greek, just and righteous are the same word. So we, may, we distinguish them in English, they don't. To be just is to be righteous. You, you always choose to do that which is right. Say that which is right. Think that which is right. So God is righteous. Deuteronomy chapter 32, the rock, that's God. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Everything God does is always good. It is always righteous. It is always just. Now, why does that one matter to you? I want you to think about it for a moment. What if everything that we've said so far about God was true except this one? What if God had all power, all knowledge, was everywhere present, and yet he loved evil? How would your life be? It would be a nightmare. You would be living in hell. You would be living in an unending horror movie. Just imagine a deity of infinite power who is everywhere present, who loves to hurt people. Your only reason for having any joy, any hope, any peace in life is that your God is also righteous. This all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God always does that which is right. Thank God or we would be living in hell. Third attribute about God's goodness, God is true. He is always true, He is always faithful. Everything He does, everything He says, everything He thinks lines up with the truth. In Titus chapter 1, it says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. God cannot say or do anything untrue. He cannot break his promises. Again, we see a, a limitation on God's power. God is almighty, and yet he cannot tell a lie. It's not possible for him, because he always does that which is true. Now, that matters greatly to you, or it should matter greatly to you, because God's made a lot of promises that you're banking on. I'm guessing you're making it through your days because God promised to be with you, to help you, to love you, to save you, to forgive you, and to bring you to heaven when this life ends. If God wasn't true, then none of that can you count on. He could just change his mind, or he could have just been lying. You need the truth of God. That's what gives you confidence in the future. God will always be true to his word, always faithful to his promises. Fourth attribute of the goodness of God, God is loving. God is loving. It tells us in 1 John 4, 16, we've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Now, I know we've covered a whole lot this morning. Some of you, have, I'm sure you feel like you're just, just a fire hose. I don't want you to miss this one. Notice that it says God is love. The equative verb, God is love. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that God woke up this morning and decided that he would love you. That's kind of how parents are towards children. I, you know, we try to be good parents, but there's days when we wake up and we think, man, (laughs) I don't want to love this boy today. Please God help me. God never has those moments because love is never a choice for God. Love is God. Love is the essence of God. God doesn't have a body that you could dissect and pull apart, but if you did, you would find love there. Love is, I like to think of it, love is the glue that binds the members of the Trinity together. Okay, before there was creation, before there was anything else, what existed? Father, Son, and Spirit, and what bound them together? What was their universe made out of? Love. Now, what is love, this triune love that unites Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, the love of God, the definition of love, is to give self to others without condition. That's what love is. You give self to others without condition. That's how Father, Son, and Spirit have loved one another, related to one another for all eternity. The Father giving himself to the Son and the Spirit without condition, the Son and the Spirit doing the same. That's love. That's the glue that's bound the Trinity together. If you cut open God, that's what you'd find. Unconditional giving of self to others. The love of God. God is the source and the definition of love. So the love of God matters greatly to us. The love of God is our salvation. If God didn't love you, He would have just given you what you deserve, which is not salvation, which is not heaven. It's death and separation. So the love of God is what motivated God to save us. The love of God is our salvation. It's also our model in life. Do you want to know how to treat other people? Love. Giving yourself to others without condition, without strings, that is the the nature of love. That's how God calls us to treat one another. So the love of God is our salvation, but how did God save us? Well, that's the fifth and final attribute of God's goodness. God is gracious. Grace means giving someone something good that they did not deserve grace, giving someone something good they don't deserve. It tells us in the book of Exodus, the Lord passed by in front of him, that's Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. God is gracious to us. He gives us things we don't deserve. That's how salvation works. It's by grace. God offers you heaven, not as something you earn. You don't come to church to go to heaven. You don't do good things to go to heaven. You don't keep a list of requirements to go to heaven. Heaven is a gift. It's, It's by grace. That means God gives you something for free you don't deserve and never will deserve. Grace is God giving you the righteousness of his son, Jesus. Jesus came and died for your sins. He lived a perfect life for you. And now he gives you his righteousness, the merits of his death, so that you can have eternal life for free. All you must do is just receive it in faith. Just say, yes, I believe. Jesus lived a perfect life for me, died in my place, rose from the dead so I could have heaven as a free gift. It is the grace of God that saves us. That's how God saves us. So it's grace that makes salvation possible for us. And it's grace that, again, just like love, models for us the way that we should live. That's why the graciousness of God matters. to you. It's your model. For life. What what does life look like for you? What should it look like for you? What does God want you to do in this world? Well, above all else, He wants you to be gracious. Wants you to be a person of grace. What does that mean? Well, that means that you give people better than they deserve at all times. It's a basic idea of being a gracious person. You give everyone better than they deserve at all times. That's the way that we as the followers of Jesus should be living. And we should do that to such an extent that the world can't help but notice. We should live such lives of grace that the world can't help but say, wow, those are gracious people. Now, the world may hate us. They may hate what we stand for. They may vehemently disagree with us. They may even persecute us. But let's make sure that in the midst of doing that, they say, wow, those are some gracious people. God is calling us to treat the world, everyone, all the sinners out there, they're sinners just like us, everyone who disagrees with us, everyone who hates us, we are to give to them better than they deserve at all times. Why? Because that's how God treats us at all times. He's our model of graciousness. Okay, so we've covered a lot of attributes this morning. Five on the left, five on the right. Ten attributes of God. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's the big one. You look at that list of ten attributes and you're tempted to think, wow, that is long and academic. That's very much a Blake-like sermon. Um, As you look at that list, though, I don't want you to think of that as like an academic list. I want you to think of that as a tool. I want you to take that home with you. I want you to use that as a tool that will fuel your worship and refine your character. Let's start with worship. How does this list fuel your worship? Well, have you ever had those days when you wake up and you just really don't want to spend time with the Lord? Or maybe you do spend time, you open your Bible and it just feels empty to you and you pray and you feel incredibly distracted and, and dry. I hope you're not in your, I mean, unless you're like two, you've had that experience. We all have had that experience. So what do you do? What do I do? I'm a pastor. I still have dry, quiet times. I still struggle at times to worship the Lord. What do you do? You pull out this list. And for each day, you take one of those attributes and you spend some time meditating on it. You go back to that attribute and you read the passage about that attribute and then you ask yourself, self, how would my life be different if this attribute wasn't true of God? How would my life be different if God wasn't loving? How would my life be different if God wasn't all-knowing? Meditate on that question for a moment and what it'll do is it'll drive gratitude deep into your heart. Because when you think about what your life would be different if even one of those words was missing from the screen, it'll devastate you. You'll realize how empty and insecure and fearful and uncertain and horrid your life would be if even one of those fell off the list. So you take one day for one attribute— Look up the passage as I've given you this morning, ask yourself how your life would be different if that wasn't true, and it will inspire gratitude and worship in your heart. It'll breathe fire into your time with the Lord. So this list is a tool that will drive your worship, it will fuel it. It's also a tool that will refine your character. And and here's what I mean by that. Um, you, You are to live like God. You're to be like Jesus. That's kind of the basic idea of your life. So you look at the list. The list on the left is not going to be super helpful for you because you don't ever get to be all powerful. Sorry, that's just, that's just life. You can't do the stuff on the left. But the right, you can. The right are attributes of God that you can share, at least to an extent. You'll never have them like God has them. But still, you can live like God in that area. You can follow his example. So for the attributes under God is good, holy, just, true, loving, gracious... What I want you to do in your quiet times, I want you to take one of those and I want you to think about it for a moment. Start by asking yourself, what do I mean when I say that God is true? What does that look like? What am I actually saying about God? Or what do I mean when I say that God is loving? What exactly do I mean by that word? What does that look like when God does it? Okay, so you think for a little bit, you meditate for a little bit on how God expresses that attribute and then you ask yourself the hard question. How well am I reflecting that attribute of God? How well am I reflecting to the world the truth of God? How well am I reflecting to the world the love of God? If they look at me, are they actually seeing an accurate image of the truth or love of our Heavenly Father? If not, why? Where are you falling short? What circumstances are leading you to fall short? When my kids act out badly, I fall short of a number of things on that list. Those are my circumstances. So identify those. This is when I'm going to struggle. 6.30 at night, I'm trying to get them ready for bed. I'm going to struggle here. I know I'm struggling with that. So, so you identify how you're doing, and then you ask yourself, how can I do better? How can I do better in this area? I'm struggling to show the love of God to my coworkers, especially when I'm stressed at work. How can I do better? And come up with a plan of action. God's goal for your life is that you'll be like him, a little Christ. That's what Christian means. You'll follow Jesus by being like Jesus. And so this list, it's not academic. This whole sermon is not meant for trivia. This is life. This is worship. This is how you walk with God and follow his example. Remember what Tozer said, most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. Let's make sure it's accurate things that come to our mind and that we're living these out, we're owning these, we're letting these sink deeply into our lives. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that every single adjective is on the board. Lord, there's not a single one of those descriptions of you that we could live without. If you were not exactly who you are, our lives would be devastated. Father, we only have hope, we only have peace we only have joy we only know love because you are everything that you are and we praise you for that we thank you that you are both great and good we praise you that you are all-knowing and all-righteous we praise you that all 10 of these attributes are in perfect harmony in you at all times so we praise you, Lord, that you are who you are. We confess that that is the most important thing about life for us. That matters far more than our jobs or our money or our homes or our or our nation, any of that. It's It's you, God, who you are. That's what matters most to us. So we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would teach us, that you would take these truths and drive them down deeply into our hearts. We we pray that this would not be trivia to us, but that it would become part of who we are. We pray that when we sit down to spend time with you, that you would remind us about your character, about your attributes, and that it would inspire us to be grateful to you and to worship you. I pray, God, also that you would, as you drive these attributes deeply into our hearts, that your spirit would convict us and show us where we are not reflecting that attribute to the world. I pray, Father, that your spirit would do a work in us this week, that he would be brutally honest with us, showing us where we're falling short and helping us to see how we can do better. I do pray, Father, that we as a family would become a beautiful reflection of your attributes to the world. That When they look at Grace Bible Church, they would see your holiness, your truth, your love, your grace, your righteousness on display. I pray, God, that you would do whatever it takes in us to make us more like you. We praise you and thank you that you are great and that you are good. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.